Let us pray together. Our Father, you are so good and kind and generous. Very often we lose sight of these realities. It's too easy for us to become enamored with the things that we see, the tangible things, created things. Father, we drift into the currents that are prevalent in this life. We mindlessly follow the trends, the practices, the masses. Our carelessness leads us to exalt false gods, to become idolaters. We become resistant to the course corrections you send our way. We dig deeper into our sin and become hardened toward you. Please forgive us. Show us the dangers that plague us. Give us a desire to flee from them and return to you. Lord, all of us gathered here today know great comforts in life. We live in a land of plenty, a land of opportunity, a land filled with blessing. We are prosperous beyond many people's imaginations. And it's tempting for us to take our riches for granted. Lord, to take on an entitled attitude. It's tempting for us to lose sight of those who live in true poverty. It's tempting for us to become cynical and forget to be generous. It's tempting for us to allow wealth to become our God. I pray that you will search my heart, that you will reveal every idol present. I pray that you will convince my heart and mind of your supreme value. I pray that you will speak to each of us today about these issues. Help us all evaluate carefully our attitudes, our beliefs, our actions. I pray that you would purge our lives of vain idols that promise but never deliver. Remind us today that you alone are worthy of our worship. You alone are worthy of our praise. Only you have true value. Only you deliver as you promise. Enable us today to leave here knowing that you and you alone are our true wealth. And we ask these things in the name of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Psalm 49 is a wisdom psalm. It is proverb-like in its message. Verses 12 and verse 20 give you the heart of the proverbial theme, that man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And you see that repeated again in verse 20. This psalm explores the complex dynamics surrounding life, particularly the assorted conditions in which we live our lives. The rich, the elite, those with power, those with notoriety, with influence, the poor, the nobodies, those without power, without notoriety, without influence. Think about the attitudes the beliefs, the fears, these differences create in each of us. All of us struggle at times, I think, with disparity of wealth 
and power and influence. We find ourselves wrestling with questions such as, why do the wicked always seem to prosper? Why do the righteous seem to have much less? How should I feel about that? What should I think about it? Does the advancement of wicked people intimidate? Does the advancement of certain people make you indignant? Do you get jealous? Do you find yourself being resentful? Wealth and power and notoriety are explosive issues. We find that virtually everywhere you look in our society today that people seem to be in hot pursuit of these things. So how do you feel and think about them? Are you discontent with your current status, your current wealth, your station in this world? Are you desperate to change your status? How do you feel as politicians carelessly burn through obscene amounts of money for things that appear to be foolish? How about the business, the corporation in which you work? You find yourself grumbling about CEOs and CFOs and stockholders. You find yourself thinking about those in celebrity culture, athletes, actors, things of this nature that seem to have so much and find yourself wondering why. The psalmist has some wisdom for us. In fact, he tells us it's a wise message. And he tells us it's a wise message for all people, not just a particular group. The message is not only for God's people. All people should sit up and listen, he says. Social nobodies, elites alike, the high and the low. It's for both the rich and the poor. Now, we easily recognize materialism having a hold in the lives of the rich. But do we think, how often do we think, that it also has its hold on the poor? What? The poor? Materialistic? Well, sure. The poor can be just as materialistic as the rich. You see, it's about the desires of the heart, not necessarily what you own or don't own. The psalmist says, my mouth will speak wisdom. This word wisdom is interesting. It means skill. My word, my mouth will speak skill like the craftsman who constructed the beautiful tabernacle. In other words, give you the necessary skill you need to live a life that's glorious in God's sight. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. This is not the psalmist's wisdom. This is wisdom put forth from God. So he tells us he's going to give us a message of wisdom. It's for all people. And then he swerves into the big question. The big question confronting all people. He says he's going to solve a riddle. What is the riddle? Why are the evil rich and comfortable while the godly seem to be poor and oppressed? The answer, he says, no amount of money can buy escape from death and judgment. All will stand before God. Every last one. 
either condemned or ransomed. The psalm is very basic. It's not deeply profound. It's not hard to understand. The real objective that the psalmist has here is to comfort God's people. Be patient and know that God balances all the books in the end. It's hard for us to see life that way, isn't it? It's hard for us to understand that those who seem to be getting ahead and prospering and having all of the uh, notoriety and fame and approval and accolades that this world has to offer seem to be so often wicked, evil, ungodly. God says through the psalmist here that we should be patient and understand that God will balance the books in the end. He speaks of fear, fearing the wealthy. Why does the psalmist feel prone to fear because of the wealthy? Well, because the evil wealthy take advantage of their wealth, of their status, of their position, and they oppress the poor. And he describes himself here as being surrounded by deceivers. Now, to clarify, he's not making the case that all the rich are wicked. He's not making the case that it's sinful to be rich. The case he is making is that those who trust in their wealth, those who boast in their abundance, they represent those that use their wealth and their position in a wrong way, in an unhealthy way, in a wicked way. They are arrogant in their wealth and they use it to harm and oppress. Such people ignore the law. They seemingly get away with avoiding the law. They use their riches to bribe, to peddle influence. Yet no one can use such riches and influence to redeem another, he says. Those things are fruitless when it comes to the key issue of life, which is spiritual life. No one, no one can use riches and influence to escape from death. In verses 10 through 12, he talks to us about the unavoidable truth that affects all people. It's certain that wealth will fail every time. Why? Because death comes to all people, to everyone. It is appointed for man to die once, then comes the judgment, Hebrews 9.27 says. The wise and the stupid both perish. Now, I don't know which category you want to put yourself in. <laughs> I know where I belong. <clears throat> and when they do, others get their wealth. Others inherit what they've worked so hard to hoard, to gather together, that which they think is going to sustain them far beyond this life has no bearing upon it. It just simply passes to someone else. Their graves are their homes forever, he says. When I was at university going to college, um, you know, you're focused on a lot of things. But one thing that caught my attention as I made my way daily around the campus is that there were a plethora of buildings, big buildings around that campus. And I noticed they all had somebody's name on them. Every single one had somebody's name on it. But the thing they had in common, <laughs> they were all dead. Every last one of them. Having their name on a building did not prolong life. 
In fact, they may have done that. I'm sure most of them gave it as some true philanthropic gift that they wanted to do good for others. But so often, having your name on something like that is meant to establish some sort of a long-lasting legacy. But how long does it last? Maybe another generation till someone comes along with more money who can pay to have it changed. The real common denominator, they all die. Streets, freeways, bridges, parks, many of them bear someone's name. But the legacy will die ultimately. The Russian writer Leo Tolstoy wrote a story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? Some of you may have read that, be familiar with it. It's about a man who keeps longing for more and more land. He just can't get enough. He has this greed driving him. And so he negotiates a deal, a thousand rubles, in order uh, for all the land that he can walk around in one day. In one day, from sunup to sundown. If he does not return to his starting point by the time the sun goes down, he loses, he loses his investment completely. So he starts early. And as the day proceeds, his greed drives him to go farther and farther. He always sees the next hill. He always sees the next stream. He sees the next grove. And he keeps pursuing, chasing after what his eye sees. Finally, he realizes that the sun is getting low in the sky. So he turns his direction back toward the starting point. He gets faster and faster desperate to get back in time. The sun is almost down. He sees the finish line. He gives it everything he has, sprinting up the hill and across the line, just as the sun sets, he finishes the course. He promptly falls to the ground, blood spurts out of his mouth, he's dead. The servant, his servant, digs a grave just long enough to bury him in. Tolstoy concludes, six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. He needed no need to fear or envy such people. Their wealth cannot save them from death. Ultimately, we give it all away. And he talks about the ultimate reality for all people, verses 13 through 15. The foolish ignore facts. This world's stuff, its riches, its possessions, they're all temporal. They're all temporal. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus said, it's all going away. There's nothing you can do to guarantee holding on to it. The foolish sees others' futility, yet he thinks that he will be the one exception, always. Now, the psalmist does something unusual here. He uses sheep in a negative connotation. Most of us think of sheep. We're called sheep, right? We are God's sheep. But he uses it to kind of point to the world in general. It's a negative connotation. They mindlessly follow the shepherd, they mindlessly follow the shepherd. Now, the shepherd here is not Christ. The shepherd here is death. They mindlessly follow 
the shepherd, the guide, the one that's leading them to destruction without even thinking about it. Note the contrast. The upright, the righteous will rule over them, it says. They, they are pursuing positions of power and influence and prosperity. But he says, ultimately, it's the upright. It's the righteous. It's those who are in God who will end up with that responsibility, with that privilege. When? In the resurrection, in the new creation. In the morning is the terminology he uses here, but it is clearly pointing as a word of hope for what is coming. In the morning. It's anticipating something new beginning. Verse 15 is a glorious verse. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Now, Sheol is one of those terms that has some mystery around it. It's difficult to clearly define. It clearly does point to an afterlife. Many people will take issue with the Jews saying that they didn't really believe in an afterlife in the Old Testament. But I don't think you can make that case. And this verse is one that can be used to advocate that argument. It points to the state after this afterlife, Sheol. Scripture calls it the bunker of the enemy. Scripture also calls it, compares it to an exile in wilderness. Sheol, separation, being removed from that which is desired. It seems that the language here points indeed to an afterlife, and it's a clear distinction between the two aspects of afterlife. There is that which is in exile, and that which is received to God. The foolish sheep move through this world and enter judgment, while the ransomed will be saved from the judgment and the grave. For he will receive me, he writes. This word receive me is the same Hebrew verb that's used uh, by God when he's talking about receiving Enoch to himself. Enoch was caught up, received unto the Lord. Psalm 73, 24 says, With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. The difference between these two people groups is made clear. One group depends and hopes in themselves, and they see what they see in this life. The other group is ransomed by God. How? This is clearly pointing what? To the cross. Pointing forward to what God did to provide the ransom for them. Buying their redemption. We came into this world as sinners. We came into this world with enmity, at enmity with God. That means we're at war with God. We're resisting God. We're in rebellion against God. Because we are born fallen with fallen hearts separated from God by our sin. Jesus came into this world as the last Adam. He came to live among us, to live a perfect life, to obey God's law completely, perfectly every time. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He went to the cross not because of his own guilt or his own failure, but because of ours. He went there and he took the sins of the elect upon himself and there he paid the penalty owed to God. He ransomed us 
back out of that Sheol, out of that grave, and reconciled us to God. So the psalmist brings us to an obvious conclusion. All this means is that we have a valuable guiding perspective for life. Verses 16 through 20. Don't worry, don't fret, don't fear when another becomes rich. When someone else seems to be getting ahead, moving beyond your station. Don't worry, don't fret, don't be resentful. Don't be envious or jealous. Don't get uptight when his name and renown increase. When he dies, he will carry nothing from this world. Nothing. Nothing. Just like the man in Tolstoy's story, just the flesh that he wore in this world is all that goes to the grave with him. He cannot buy any extensions. His money will not make any difference in his eternity. Just like animals that perish, he will never see light again. The only hope, the absolute only hope, is he or she among the ransomed, belonging to God. If not, judgment awaits. Judgment awaits in what Scripture calls a place called hell that is much clearer in its intent than the term Sheol. If yes, then he has a resurrection like that of Christ. He becomes second fruits, fruits that follow the first fruit of Christ's resurrection. Will come at the Lord's proper time. So how do you think about and approach this world and this life? I mean, what is your normal, typical thought process about the things that are going on in this world? When you hear that a man has offered $40 billion to buy a social media platform, what kind of thoughts do you have? I can't count that high. I'm not even sure my calculator works that high. You know, we can't get our minds around this kind of obscene wealth that we hear about. Do we, do we have jealousy over it? Envy over it? Do we wish? Do we wish maybe, I just like a little of it. I don't want the whole amount. Because you look at these people who have all that money, they're never happy, are they? Do you blindly follow the masses of people? Just go along to be getting along with what's going on in the world. Do you adopt the attitudes, the beliefs, and actions so prevalent in our world? Do you think you have a perspective that will enable you to finish well? Scripture says this life is but a vapor. We sang about it earlier. Just a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. What's really important and critical for us is that we are prepared for when this life does end. Jim Elliott. Tuesday, January 3rd, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries landed on a small strip of land in the jungles of Ecuador. It was a dangerous landing. In fact, they couldn't all land at the same time. But for years, they had been planning and dreaming of this excursion. 
Their hearts were set on reaching the Alka Indians with the good news of Christ. This tribe was notoriously dangerous. Others had tried to reach out to them and been attacked. But for three months, these missionaries had been flying over the area regularly, dropping gifts and shouting greetings. But when they landed, they built a hut. They waited for the Indians to come and confront them. They knew the dangers. Their wives had talked about the possibility of becoming widows. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, says they went simply because they knew they belonged to God, because He was their Creator and their Redeemer. They had no choice but to willingly obey Him, and that meant obeying His command to take the good news to every nation. Friday, January the 6th, three Aukas, one man and two women approached them. They exchanged greetings. The missionaries showed them rubber bands and yo-yos and balloons. And the man was even given a ride in the airplane. But down deep inside, the tribe suspected that these people were cannibals there to eat them and destroy them. On Sunday, January 8th, they were due to radio in at 4.30. There was silence. When no message came, a plane was sent and then a rescue party. They found four of the bodies in a stream, all lanced to death. The fifth body was never recovered. They were obviously ambushed. All five were martyred for the sake of Christ. All were married. Four were fathers. One other wife was pregnant. Jim Elliott once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott had seen through the lie of consumerism in this world. He'd seen the emptiness of all that this world offers, and he had realized that the far greater value, the far greater value is that of the new creation that God promises. How do you see this present world? How are your attitudes, your actions, your ideas shaped by this present world what do you value most is wealth your god or is god your wealth let's pray together father we are indeed grateful grateful for the time that we have to study your word we are grateful father for truths that you speak into our lives truths that, Lord, point us toward you and away from uh, the foolishness that often characterizes this world. But we ask you for forgiveness. We ask you to search our hearts and expose those idols that so subtly creep in and take up residence in our hearts and our minds, that clamor and draw out and want our worship for us to treat them and believe that they have great value, worth pursuing, worth sacrificing for, only to discover they offer only destruction. Father, I pray that you would help us understand that you indeed are the only two true treasure and that, Lord, you might fill our hearts with this truth and empower us to pursue you in this manner 
through the power of your spirit working in us. For that one who is among us today who does not know you as Savior, I pray that this truth would become so real that you would convince that heart of the need to abandon the things this world uses to entice us and to turn only to you. To believe the gospel, repent, and and follow Christ. Have your way in us today for your glory, Lord, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.